Hello, welcome to T Hangs for the Memories. I am your host, Darren. Today we are discussing Apollo 13, uh, which unfortunately is not the 13th film of Tom Hanks' career, but it is the 20th. Would have been nice if you could have lined those things up for me. Um, it was released on the 30th of June, 1995. It was a huge hit. Uh, made six times its budget. Everybody loved it. 96% on Rotten Tomatoes, 87% from the audience. 7.6 on IMDb, but you know, they're a little bit more critical. If your film isn't about, I don't know, people escaping from a prison, then they don't rate it highly. Uh, Tom did not win the Oscar. It went to Nicolas Cage for probably one of his laziest performances. Um, but you know, <laughs> Oscar voters love someone just getting drunk, you know. Um, and <laughs> joining me to talk about this today, I have Susan Hill. Hello. Uh, returning from many episodes, I have Andy Nelson. Hi there. And I love that Nicolas Cage performance, so watch your mouth, sir. <laughs> <laughs> and I have Eric Deutsch. Hello, Eric. Hello, and I've never seen that movie. Uh, it's, it's okay. <laughs> I mean, I personally don't think it's better than any of the performances in this film, but, you know, uh, I might be slightly biased. I mean, at least Ed Harris... Um, did he win or did he just get nominated? I can never remember. He was nominated. Yeah, as, alongside um, Kathleen Quinlan. Yeah, she playing, was nominated uh, as well. Yeah, playing Marilyn. Um, yeah, and this is obviously Tom returning to Ron Howard uh, after 11 years. I don't know what Ron did to him that made him take this long. He's, <laughs> you know, worked with uh, Penny Marshall twice in between. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, it's, I think it's funny because, like, obviously... With this and with Saving Private Ryan, um, this is where Tom Hanks turns literally into America's dad as he becomes obsessed with both space and World War II. Um, and he goes on to make TV series about space and World War II, which I will not be covering. I'm not covering TV series. I made that clear at the beginning. I didn't cover Buzz and Buddies. I'm, I'm not covering anything, any other TV series that Tom Hanks uh, feels the need to participate in. Um, and to make everybody feel super old... Uh, the distance from this film being released to now is further than the distance from this film being released to when the actual incident happened. Oh, uh, oh that hurts. Yeah. 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 So obviously this happened like 51 years ago and it's been 26 years since the Jeez. film came out. So, uh, yeah. Uh, I should mention uh, cinematography on this done by Dean Kundi, who um, regularly works with Robert Zemeckis and uh, I think also worked with John Carpenter as well. So He certainly did. I, we had him a little plug here. We had a bonus interview with him on Escape from New York. That's fantastic. Oh, yeah. man. I love I loved Dean Kundi. He's just like, he's a great cinematographer. And this film, I think, is sold a lot on the cinematography and the special effects. We'll talk about the launch. And how slightly ropey that looks these days. But uh, the rest of it is, you know, uh, impeccable. Uh, and obviously his work on Roger Rabbit. I mean, amazing. Amazing stuff from Dean Cundy. Um, You know, uh, like whenever I see his name on a film, I'm like, if this film is good or bad, does not matter. <laughs> he, you know, it's going to look great. Um, so... Uh, yeah, um, and obviously produced by Brian Grazer, he of the extremely tall hair. Um, and I did a podcast about Arrested Development where in one season there was a lot of jokes about his hair, but also about <laughs> the Lem and how Ron Howard loved to have meetings inside the Lem uh, that he has in his office at Imagine, uh, which I'm not sure if that's completely true, but I... I don't know. I kind of would believe it from Ron Howard <laughs> for him to be like, give me, give me a you know rec a recreation of the limb, um, and of course I should say as well, score by J uh, James Horner, just a wonderful score. Really, uh, you know, we'll get into it as we go through the film, but yeah. 
Um, now, I'm going to shock many people because the first time that I watched this film all the way through was today, what? a couple of hours ago. <laughs> and Whoa. I know. I know. Just slowly shaking my head I, at you. <laughs> look, look, here is the thing. I will make this clear, right? We had, a, we had a local cinema. It was a two-screen cinema. It closed in, like, 1993. And then we didn't have a proper local cinema until, like, 1997. Since 1997, I've seen a lot of films at the cinema. So far this year, I've seen 32. And the, the cinema's only been open for three months. So I see a lot of films at the cinema. There was nowhere for me to see this film without me going really far out of my way. I saw a Toy Story at the cinema, and that was only because I was staying at a friend's house at the time, and they had a local cinema, so we went and saw it there. So, you know, the, like, during 1995, I had, I had nowhere to go and see anything at the cinema without going, you know, a distance. Um, so, um, and I had seen this on TV, but not properly, like, all the way through. I think I'd seen, like, from kind of the middle a few times um you know so to the end so i you know i i got the general gist of it but i hadn't really ever seen it from beginning to end until you know today um but obviously given the shocked expressions um and also given andy's history i know that he probably saw it in the cinema opening weekend um though i don't want to presume andy but when was the first time that you in saw the it? cinema on opening weekend that, that is 100% <laughs> accurate. Uh, yes, no, I, it's, this was a, a period, and you know, it's summer, you know, no school, and so I probably saw it several times in the theater um, yeah. that summer. Uh, it was a packed house. I, as I recall, I was fairly close to the front, but it was just such an immersive film. I just, I just absolutely loved it, so, um, and I uh, still do. It's just, a, it's just a fantastic film so yes uh i saw this in the theater as well this was uh a, I, I remember actually seeing it because it's one of the summers i was in college that i worked in a movie theater and so we got to see movies for free all summer um and i took my grandparents and parents to see this with all my extra free tickets um i don't remember if it was opening weekend or not it might have been the second week but i definitely specifically remember seeing this with all of them and uh, i loved it and it's one of those movies where because it's a true story so I obviously knew uh, the basics of what would happen. I still was on the edge of my seat the entire time. I don't believe I saw it in the theater. Uh, my dad was big on like videos at home, like since I was a, a wee thing. So I saw most videos at home for the first time. Um, but uh, it started my love of everything Apollo and everything uh, like early space race NASA. So I read a lot of Apollo books. <laughs> Very cool. Uh, obviously, the, you know, there's a there's a couple of actors in this that will return in that thing you do. There's and a huge overlap. They don't play the same <laughs> characters, of course, but there's a huge overlap. No, I own like I don't know how many versions of uh, um, from the Earth to the Moon, which is like has so many actors in common with this movie that it's crazy playing different uh, characters. And I've seen that ten part HBO series probably like fifteen times at least. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and obviously they mentioned the death of Gus Grissom um, in the opening montage. And uh, Brian Cranston plays Gus Grissom in that thing you do. <laughs> so I, I don't know if that was just Tom Hanks trying to bring him back to life and have him, uh, you know, be in a film and not die. Because <laughs> uh, I feel like like everything about Gus Grissom focuses on the fact that he basically died in a fireball in, you know, on the on the launch pad. Yep. Um, you know. And obviously there's kind of talk of like that being a problem and then saying, oh, yeah, we, you know, we fix that problem. Um, but yeah, so as we go through the film, there'll be a lot of different actors that have either appeared <laughs> with Tom Hanks or will appear with Tom Hanks in future productions, um, including Clint Howard, who in this film gets like a huge role. Um, 
which I completely forgot. Like, I knew he'd be in it because obviously Ron Howard. Uh, but then when he appeared, I was like, this is this is a lot of uh, dramatic weight to be placing on your uh, balding brother. That's he has pretty- an actual um, part. Like, it's an actual part. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> he isn't just, like, in the background. Uh, but I'm guessing also this is this is you know working with him here is probably where Tom Hanks ha- also had him appear in that thing you do, uh, maybe just you know to give him give him something different to do instead of just appearing in all of Ron's films. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, you know let's jump in. Uh, you know we we we're at the you know the you know the man landing on the moon. You know they spend a lot of the opening going through that whole thing and you know the kind of parties that are taking place in Houston. Um, this one, I think, is hosted by Jim Lovell, um, obviously, you know, played by Tom Hanks. Uh, what I like is that as Kevin Bacon is on screen, his credit comes across him. So it's Kevin Bacon. It literally says Kevin Bacon, uh, just in case you didn't know who. So that that's was. only one degree of separation uh, then. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What I like here is obviously, you know, they do, uh, I, you know, something that I'm guessing, obviously, you know, Tom Hanks growing up being the right age for this, like, you know, his fascination, as I said, here with space and then later with world war Two, um you know fits perfectly for his age range and obviously he would have been a lot younger um you know when this happened and so probably has a memory of this um you know actually happening um and you know i like uh i like the whole thing of people landing on the moon because it happens a couple of days before my birthday so i think actually when they started to return was on my birthday eight years before i was born but still <laughs> you know i feel a connection to that event happening um, but yeah, I like I, I like that basically this sets up the fact that obviously the, you know all the astronauts who see this happening, um, they're not like jealous or anything, but obviously they feel it's a sense of achievement, f- you know, for the whole program, and you know all the wives and children are obviously very excited about it, and you know it's it's given this kind of weight, which I think you know after many many years of us not going to the moon, um, you know like. I feel like that's been diminished a little bit, but I think that Ron Howard really gets across the idea that it was, you know, an event watched by the entire world and that kind of completely changed everything. Like, you know, literally people step in on a completely different, you know, planetoid is like, you know, even now it's kind of mind blowing, but I think it just has, at this point, it's just become so accepted that you're like, you know, whatever people walked on the moon, but I, I like how they're building up here as, you know, something that not not just the guys who are actually doing it you know obviously feel the weight of it but all the guys who worked on it and that is obviously something that will become important as the film goes on it's not just the people that are in you know the actual uh module but the people on you know in you know mission control like that whole thing but it's a, it's a nice contrast um, as well because you see how big a deal it is for for neil and buzz to land on the moon and walk on the moon but by two missions later they don't even care enough to broadcast from space so it's always the first, you know, the first is really exciting, like the first Dragon capsule that went up to the uh, International Space Station. Everyone was super excited. And after that, just like, oh, well, well, we've seen it. Right. And it's like, how how many times <laughs> have we sent things to Mars now? It's like, <laughs> I, I remember how excited everyone was the first time, but it just, yeah, it loses interest. But they do capture that excitement here. Uh, and it's, I think that can be a hard thing to kind of capture, but there is a sense of real amazement that these people are seeing somebody actually on the moon so it's it's pretty cool yeah the people at the yeah. party they're they're celebrating yeah i mean they're they're not the people that are on the moon they're not the people that are at mission control they're just at a house they are co-workers essentially of the people doing this mission and they are celebrating that's how big of a deal this is yeah 
And the this is how I feel when I, I learn that somebody else has completed a spreadsheet at work. I, I, I run around <laughs> my plan excitedly. But just the sheer number of people around the world who watched it happen live on TV as well yeah. is amazing. There is a film that came out a few years after this called uh, yes, The Dish. Such a great movie. I saw that. Uh, which has Sam Neill in. I saw that. I saw it at the cinema. Mm. See, I do go to the cinema to watch films. Um, and uh, yeah, I, and that's a, that's like a great thing about like this kind of like the way that the signal gets from, you know, the moon to like America has to go through various different kind of relays around the world. And obviously it's the kind of the whole drama of this one kind of Australian dish out in the middle of nowhere, kind of like not working properly <laughs> and to fix it. And then they fix it. And then, you know, Neil Armstrong's words are broadcast. Um, and I should say at this point, anyone who thinks we didn't land on the moon, is it <laughs> here? Here, <laughs> like there is, there is, like there is so much evidence we went to the moon um, that you can even confirm if you get a strong enough telescope and point it at the moon, and you can see the lander on the moon. If you really want to, they left a buggy up there. You can see that buggy, like you know. I, although I will admit, also I do find the extremely cynical line from The Simpsons of like, you know, we went to the moon. Then we went to the moon again, and now this, which is obviously the debut of Poochie um, <laughs> on, on TV, you know, kind of like diminishing everything to the point where like the, the debut of a new character on Itchy and Scratchy is as, as important as going to the moon <laughs> twice. And let, um, uh, and let me say that if anyone ever wants to see a, a little catharsis on that, uh, there was a person, I don't know how long ago this was, 10, 15 years maybe, who was constantly hounding Buzz Aldrin. Uh, oh, yeah. about him supposedly faking everything. And finally, uh, he, there was a camera, and Buzz Aldrin, who was like 75 years old at the time, just flat out cold cocked this guy. And it is such a fun thing to watch. <laughs> it's on YouTube. <laughs> uh, no, yeah, but the thing is, when later on when um, when Jim has his like dream of landing on the moon, uh, that has some of the things that people who claim we never landed on the moon, it has some of the issues that creating like recreating landing on the moon has in terms of like the way shadows affect and the way that dust moves and stuff so you know even with 1995 technology they couldn't convincingly make it look like someone was stepping on the moon well that's the other thing as well like how do you think first of all there were so many people involved like hundreds of thousands of people involved in in making the moon landing happen from people who were programmers to builders and all that kind of thing how do you keep all of them secret if it's fake and second of all, like they didn't have the technology to fake it. Like you said, like you couldn't do it in 1995 convincingly. How are they going to do it in 1969? It's, it's bonkers. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. Lunatics, uh, literally, uh, who think we didn't land on the moon. Uh, that is all we're going to be saying about that. Uh, but yeah, I like this party as well because we get the kind of subtle introduction of, of the, the kind of the main characters. Uh, we also see that Kevin Bacon... You know, the character he'll be playing, who obviously eventually will go to the moon. <laughs> um, Spoilers. You know, uh, <laughs> yeah, Jack, Jack Swigert, he's kind of partying a bit more than the other guys because obviously, you know, he's kind of in his role as like a backup guy. He's like, he's not he's not expecting himself to be flying anytime soon. Whereas obviously, you know, Jim Lovell and uh, Fred Hayes and uh, Mattingly, uh, like they obviously are expecting at some point in the next 
kind of cycle to be going on the next mission. So they're kind of more trying to keep themselves, you know, uh, you know, ready to fly, basically. Um, and I thought that was kind of a nice little thing. You know, when when Tom Hanks does go outside to take a look at the moon and, you know, he says to his wife, you know, she's like, you're drunk. And he's like, it's only champagne. Like, <laughs> which I thought was just a nice thing of like, you know, he's not seriously drunk. He's a little bit drunk. But, you know, like there's just the idea that they are, you know, extremely well-trained military guys who... You know, have to stay in shape because, you know, there are going to be this is not the last time that, you know, we're going to go to the moon. Like there's going to be more missions. Of course, there's also talk that they're going to finish it after like um, 17, I think, is what they keep mentioning. Um, You know, so there is also talk of the fact that, you know, this this has been an extremely expensive endeavor to get man onto the moon. Um, and of, you know, the Soviets were winning that race. And then, you know, the Americans spent a lot more money um, and hired a few ex-Nazis, let's say, um, to get themselves finally there. And so, you know, now that they've done that, it's like, well, they're just going to keep going back. <laughs> and it's like, you know, like, I, I like the idea that, the, the you know, from, from like a kind of, you know, from the point of view of like Ron Howard or Tom Hanks, who obviously are in love with this whole space thing, the idea of going back makes complete sense. But for people who are concerned about public finances or whatever in like 1970, you know, the idea that they're going back is you know, it's seen as like a limited thing. It's like, we're, we're not just going to keep going to the moon every Well, the whole year, idea like, was to beat the Russians. And once you beat the Russians, well, we beat yeah. them. Why would we keep spending billions of dollars to keep sending right. people back to the same place over and over again? Yeah, like how many, yeah. how many times can we experiment uh, on these space rocks? You know, I mean, that's what, that's what a lot of people say. Yeah, exactly. Rocks is rocks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously there's a lot of things that, you know, uh, that we use in space that, are now used commonly every day, you know, and stuff that was done for the whole space race that is used every day, not least of which is GPS. And Tang. Uh, you know, being able to figure out. Well, I mean, space we don't have Tang over here, so unfortunately... Seinfeld's <laughs> upside down <laughs> writing pen. So many things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was thinking more of, like, Velcro. It was, like, one of the things that, that had practical effects. But, yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, there is a little bit of that debate in the film where they're like, why do we keep going back? And Tom Hanks is like, well, you know, if uh, if uh, Columbus went to the New World and then nobody followed him, like that was that would have been a waste. Uh, but I'm not sure that that analogy completely works because one, Columbus never went anywhere near, <laughs> never went anywhere near America. But also, two, um, we're not colonizing the moon yet. So, <laughs> you know, if his argument is you need to keep going back because of something else, and also. I don't know what there's this weird idea that we could like mine the moon, but there's there's not going to be anything in there. I don't know how to break this to people, but there weren't any dinosaurs on the moon, so. But what if it's made of no cheese? Oil up there. <laughs> yeah, just well, the I feel I, I think that uh, Wallace and Gromit have already <laughs> done that mission for us, so we don't <laughs> we don't settled. The BBC already funded already funded that mission, so you know, uh, yeah. So uh, we, we, we kind of then we get uh, I think Jim gets noticed that basically he's going to be on the next on the next mission. And, and uh, you know, he he, he will be uh, going up into space. Uh, you know, he's obviously happy to hear about that. Uh, and then he has a nightmare about being sucked out of the airlock into space. Uh, That's his wife. She wakes up from Marilyn suddenly. Has a nightmare, doesn't she? Yeah. Oh, she has a nightmare. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, yeah. Um, which apparently, according to the DVD commentaries, that really happened. She did have that kind of recurring nightmare. She of, like, also her husband. did lose her wedding ring down, down the, the train, train right? but eventually got it back. Yep. 
Yeah. Because a lot of people were like, um, oh, playing that up for a dramatic effect and the mission is cursed. She's like, no, no, I, my ring really did she, go Yeah, down she the was train. a very superstitious person and it all really happened. Yeah, she hated yeah, yeah she hated that they were flying, like Number they were taking 13. off on, uh, yeah, on 13, like, and landing on the moon or something on April 13th. It was April 13th in there somewhere. It's like, yeah, this is just yeah. bad luck after bad luck after curse. <laughs> yeah, that, that, well, uh, uh, that nightmare, uh, it maybe when I used to, years ago when I was in news radio i had a recurring nightmare that um, i would go on the air and, and the script would be missing or that the screen would be too bright and i couldn't read it or that like i would like my tongue would not be forming words and, and i mean i had a nightmare a lot and it's you know but as far as nightmares go you know it's not you know it just would mean i screwed up work for the day this nightmare <laughs> is you're sucked out into space it's just you know really like the comparison of where what what you know what kind of nightmare you'll have based on what career you have really is an incredible <laughs> juxtaposition there <laughs> yeah, can you imagine? Uh, just think about uh, like the nightmares that the people who are actually on like space stations are regularly having. Like, I, I imagine it's this sort of nightmare quite often. Sure. I mean, it can't be too bad, Andy, because obviously all they are is in a studio with a green screen, <laughs> and they're, or they're in a swimming pool, or whatever other nonsense flat earthers think is true. Uh, also, yes, flat earthers, you are also idiots. Uh, there tends to be a big overlap between flat earthers and people who didn't think. It's funny how that works. Right? Yeah. There's also a group of people who don't think that space exists. Um, do, uh, I, I don't know. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> we get a nice little thing where Jim takes uh, like the, the model of like the lander and stuff and explains to his, his son. He's like, you know, this is how we launch. And then this part comes off and then, you know, this. So he's basically, you know, and then this lands on the moon. So he's giving him the kind of. Uh, you know, the kind of description of what definitely will happen in this film later on. Um, and I, I like how they just put it here as like him explaining it to a kid rather than, you know, going to the trouble of having, you know, experts or whatever explain it. Because to be honest with you, if you're inside NASA, nobody should have to explain to you how a missile launch works and how, a, how an LEM will land onto the moon. Those shouldn't be things you should be explaining to each other. So... Um, you know, really the only person who wouldn't understand would be a kid. So I like how they kind of slip in a bit of exposition. It, it works. I I, yeah, I, would, no. I felt like he probably already had this talk with this kid, but at the same time, it works really well in context of the film. So I go along with it. Yeah. Yeah, because they have to talk about the, the astronauts who died in the fire as well. So his kid is concerned, yeah. you know, yeah. that, you know, what if you die in a fire? Yeah, this was a very good scene. I watched this scene, uh, uh, this movie with my older son and he had, just before the scene, had just said something on how cool it would be if I, or, you know, quote unquote, his dad was an astronaut. And then they have this scene, the son asks, you know, can this fire happen again? And that's kind of the other side of the coin, right? Like, wow, my dad's an astronaut, but then there's the family stress of my dad's going to work today and he may not come back. Yeah, right. The stress on fa on yeah. Apollo families uh, was incredible. And I think the majority of astronauts um, ended up divorced for the most part. Everyone who stepped on the moon yeah. by the end of the 70s was not with the same person they wow. were before yep. they stepped on the moon. Jeez. Puts incredible pressure uh, on the families because they're away for long yeah. stretches of time. They do dangerous things. You know, it's just, it's and in a couple of cases, uh, the wives died. So, <laughs> so they, they just married a second person. But yeah, yeah the divorce rate amongst, amongst people who stepped on the moon is extremely high. Um, you know, the, the fact that, um, that Jim Lovell didn't go to the moon probably saved his marriage. Um, but of course, you know, he did go to the moon because that's what's going to happen. That's he circled what we the moon to twice. In this film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not once, but twice. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we get this this guy who for some reason recognizes Jim Lovell 
Um, and he's like, lucky number 13. And then he like drag races off. And I'm like, uh, uh, you know, uh, I was just kind of, I was, I mean, I'm assuming that like Ron Howard is calling back to the fact that he was, um, I don't know, in American graffiti or something like, um, I, I just thought it was a weird thing for this guy to recognize Jim Lovell and taunt him with <laughs> lucky 13. Well, I think they were trying to really say like, I mean, there was a time when these guys were treated like rock stars. I mean, yeah. it was, it was so cool to, I mean, can you imagine like you're, you're driving around and you happen to look out the window and there's one of the, the astronauts. I mean, that's, uh, I think what they were trying to say here is like, these guys were like some of the coolest people in the country names. at that time. Yeah. 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 I just thought it, it was a bit odd that he's that he chose to recognize this person and then taunt him with lucky number thirty. Well, I love. <laughs> I was like, I love that the guy, dra- cool. guy tries to drag race him and then and then uh, he stalls the he stalls his Corvette. <laughs> 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 it's like it's a portent of things to come. You can't drive. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, <laughs> uh, the, the point we... about you know them, uh, how everybody knew who they were. I mean, you know, I think in this movie and in you know a lot of other. Um, movies based on true stories the astronauts are always depicted as being these larger than life people you know they're they're quick-witted they have great senses of humor they're really smart everybody loves them they're all good looking they're really put on a pedestal in these movies and it is sort of almost like they are you know real life superheroes you know here in this world where we don't have actual superheroes it's like what is something someone can do that sort of raises you above that level oh wow you went into space you know you know point oh oh one percent of people ever yeah. get to do that this is and you're risking your life to do it. It's you know, it's it's an incredibly big deal, and these movies really, um, they really play that up. We find out in the next scene that Marilyn uh, is not going to attend the launch. She's she's seen them all before. She doesn't need to attend a launch. Um, and we have this, as you said, these guys being quick witted. We have this press conference where <laughs> where they're they're talking about like it being number thirteen and stuff, and and obviously you know Gary Sinise is making a, a ton of jokes about how. Like he had his cat walk over a broken mirror and all this, like just all the kind of like everything that they could possibly say about it being unlucky, you know, because the reporters brought it up that it is going to be like landing on uh, April 13th at 1300 hours and all this kind of stuff. So that there's a lot of 13s involved. Um, and I did find it quite funny that they're like the, you know, the astronauts are like, look, we're just going to try and land on the moon. Like, with yeah, that reporter's nonsense. a dick. <laughs> it just it's so <laughs> unnecessary to bring to make that comment. <laughs> yeah, well, and, I, and I love when Tom Hanks uh, or when Jim is talking to his wife and, and she's talking about thirteen and he's like comes after twelve. <laughs> like it's just it's so straight factual. I just uh, that was such that's, a great that's a kind uh, of a great I, line. I, I, the kind of people astronauts were. Up, yeah. I mean, they were military. They, a yeah. lot of them were test pilots or were veterans. Like they were just like. I, I'm very detail orientated, like your superstitious stuff. Like, nope, sorry, that's something else. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and also this is where uh, Jim Lovell says, you know, he this is going to be his final mission. He's already been to space a couple of times. You know, he's he's gone around the moon once already, you know. So landing on it is pretty much the end of his career. Like, what else is there? After you've landed on the moon, you know, what else are you going to do? Um, it's all down. Life must be such yeah. a letdown <laughs> after that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so the, you know, the, so this will be his final mission. Obviously, he's un, you know, for other reasons, he's unaware of at this moment. Um, and then we get news that someone's got measles, and uh, you know, the, <laughs> has been exposed to measles. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. So it's, probably I mean, it's funny because <laughs> watching watching this whole thing like in 2021 is like 
you know, the whole protocols, it's, it's kind of like the fact that Ken Mattingly's like, I haven't got measles. He's like, yeah, but buddy, like, you know, if you haven't had it before, there's a chance you're going to get it. So you probably best to stay away from everybody, uh, which, of course, means that you're not going to fly. Um, you know, in these times, we're like, that makes complete sense. But obviously, Mattingly really wanted to go to space. Um, as all the astronauts did, because obviously that's what you're trained to be. You're not training to be a landronaut, you're training to be an astronaut, so you want to get up there. Um, and so we get a quick cut to um, Fred Hayes, who is, you know, uh, a confirmed bachelor, and he's having fun in a hotel room with a friend, and he gets the phone call and Jack, he's told... Jack Swagger. That- you said Fred Hayes. Sorry, yes. Fred Hayes is oh, sorry, a married yes. man with Jack a child Swagger, on yes. the way. Come on. Yes, sorry. No, no. <laughs> sorry. Jack Swigert, yeah. Um, he gets the call and he's told that um, he's going to be going to space. And I love Kevin Bacon's like kind of reaction while Gary Sinise is like, I'm, I haven't got measles. And he's like, yeah, like super excited about going to space. Am I the only person uh, that feels but... that Kevin Bacon plays Kevin Bacon in this movie? It's just Kevin Bacon in space. <laughs> His, I mean, his his triumphant cheer there does feel a little bit straight out yeah. of Footloose. Yeah. I would have liked if they'd have just cut to a sequence of him in like an astronaut suit just kind of uh, crazy dancing yeah. through the woods. Uh, happy to, to hear this whole thing. Uh, yeah. Jack Swigert, a real person, obviously, as most of the people in this film are, uh, being played here by Kevin Bacon, who is a wonderful actor. Um, I know he's ended up turning into a weird meme, uh, but... You know, he's just, he's always a, a really fun, he's always a really fun actor. Um, and uh, now he's, because of uh, Bernie Madoff, is a spokesperson for a uh, telephone network over here. And he's constantly in adverts all the time <laughs> telling everybody about how they can. Oh, no. Yeah. So, um, you know, that's why he did that TV series on Fox for like three years, because he had no money, because all of it went. Um yeah, but he's great here, Jack Swigert in real life. A, you know, we'll find out at the end. But uh, wanting to be a congressman, bit of a Republican, uh, you know, kind of makes sense with the whole military thing. Um, and yes, Fred Hayes is Bill, pa- who's being played by Bill Paxton. I think this is the first time and only time that either Kevin Bacon or Bill Paxton have worked with Tom Hanks. Um, this is obviously the second time that Gary Sinise has worked with him. He will work with Tom one more time before the end of the millennium. Um, and obviously Mattingly is kind of heartbroken that he, you know, cannot go up, uh, but he will, you know, happily, you know, stay with the uh, mission command and, you know, watch, watch the, watch the whole thing from there. So, uh, you know, and he can go up, you know, on another mission, uh, you know, they make it clear that the choice is, you know, Mattingly doesn't go up or they all don't go up. Uh, and obviously Jim Lovell's like, I want to go to space. So. <laughs> I like you, man, but hold on. The movie's calling. <laughs> yeah. Ken, Ken's a good guy, but I really want to go walk on the moon. So, unfortunately... Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> you're out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, go, no go. You're out, buddy. Get out of here. Uh, yeah. And, you know, we see this weird thing that apparently didn't... Was kind of sort of a thing they, they sometimes did where uh, the family is say goodbye from the other side of the road. Um this is obviously where we we see, uh, you know, uh, Fred Hayes's pregnant wife saying goodbye to him and Betty Spaghetti. Uh, yes, Betty yeah, Spaghetti a, returns. Tom Hanks connection. Yeah, yeah uh, we've already seen her. I think twice before now. No, no, I think uh, she returns in You've Got Mail. So uh, this is the second of three times she will work with him. Um, uh, and although, of course, she was directed by him in the TV series of uh, League of Their Own. Um, which lasted, I don't know, not many episodes. And was not terrible. Very good. 
Yeah, Susan can tell you about I think, that. I think she's been in more than that of his She was movies. in That Thing You Do she's as well, I believe. She was in Nothing in Common. She was in Big. Oh, she yes. She was in yeah. uh, League of Their Own, Paul 13, That Thing yeah. You Do. I so, don't think yeah. I even noticed her in Big, to be honest with you. Um, she played a test market researcher. <laughs> oh, there you go. Prob- probably in the room with all the kids bouncing around. Yeah, ba- barely a role. So you, wouldn't, you wouldn't have noticed. This her. is like yeah, a young saleswoman in Nothing in Common. We didn't talk about that on that episode. This is the second time that she's a named role, let's say. Yeah. Um, this movie has because yeah. I, I previously appeared uh, on this podcast doing a League of Their Own, and this movie has two things in common with a League of Their Own. One is Betty Spaghetti, and the second one is the clap. Because in this movie, um, Fred Hayes says that he, he thinks that he got the clap from uh, Swigert and is pissing oh. in his relief tube. <laughs> and in a League right. of Their Own, he gives uh, a little kid advice by signing, like you know, don't get the Be- clap. Beware, <laughs> Beware of the, the clap, Jimmy. Exactly. <laughs> Two things in common with, with that movie. <laughs> uh, let me just state that the other uh, show I was on for this, uh, of course, was Bachelor Party, and that has nothing in common with this movie whatsoever. <laughs> no. Well, Jack Schweigert is a bachelor, so there you go. I tied them together. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he. Do, I mean, I guess once he lands, he does have a bachelor party. So there you are. Ah, there we um, go. Took us a while. Uh, yeah. So, uh, we, you know, uh, obviously Marilyn changes her mind. She comes and says goodbye. Um, and you know, this is the night before the launch, and then the next day we have the launch. She loses her ring. In the shower on that morning, um, you know, which I guess is, is, is a bad thing. Um, uh, and we see the astronauts being strapped in, um, you know, a lot of people around them kind of tightening things up. And I like how, you know, the, the like the, the three main actors are just basically seeing they're doing nothing while all these people are coming in and putting things on them, putting on helmets, strapping stuff on. Um, you know, and in Mission Control, we, you know, we see that Gene, as played by Ed Harris, um, Gene Krantz, uh, he gets a, a vest with the, you know, the little, uh, like, insignia thing for this particular mission on it, um, which obviously he sees as being, you know, good luck um, for that particular mission. I mean, Well, apparently you know, his, wife, his, should... my, his wife made him a waistcoat for every mission, uh, which they, yes. sort of, they yeah. sort of comment on in the movie where he says, like, the last one looks like it was made by a gypsy or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that, that waistcoat is actually in the Smithsonian on display uh, oh, okay. i believe at the air and space museum which would make a lot of sense uh but there's a little sign next to it that says um they only put it on display after this movie because before this movie nobody cared well yeah i yeah, mean interesting you know it's just a vest worn by a guy who a white vest couldn't get a guy on the moon <laughs> yeah yeah right, so. right i wonder if they were getting a lot of requests for that though like how did they know people wanted to see it it's just such a, such a part <laughs> like, of the like, hey. it's iconic i guess in the movie yeah right. yeah I just wanted to be, see those people coming up. Where are Jean's vests? Can we yeah, see those? <laughs> we get the whole launch sequence. We have everybody in Mission Control. There's a whole bunch of actors here. We're all playing a lot of real people. Um, it is of note that the only two people in this film who act like dicks are fictional people. <laughs> so obviously, in you know, in return for some cooperation from NASA... Uh, and obviously his own uh, LEM that he can put in his office later on. Ron Howard was obviously like, yeah, if I make anybody be nasty, they're not going to be a real person. They're going to have not going to have a real person's name. Um, so we will we will we'll see some uh, some fictional people being, uh, you know, generally unhelpful uh, as things go on. Is Henry one of them? Because uh, I wanted to punch Henry in the face. Yeah, he is. Yeah, Xander <laughs> Berkeley uh, returning from volunteers. This is the second yeah, time he's right. worked with Tom. Um, and in that one, he played Tom's best friend. 
So, which is his, well, his college roommate. Well, I, I mean, they were kind of friendly, weren't they? I mean, they were friendly. I mean, he obviously, you know, is only only for a car, for other. Yeah, yeah, only for a car. So. <laughs> and and for and for oh the yeah, girl. and for the girlfriend. Yeah. So. Well, in this <laughs> so, movie, he kind of right. sleazy and hits on like Jim Lovell's youngest, like his daughter, like uh, like his teen daughter, because everyone's like bye bye bye. And then when his daughter walks by in the room after the broadcast, he leans over and he goes bye. I was like. You are such a creep. <laughs> that's gross. <laughs> I mean, I feel like that's like Xander Berkeley's, like, you know, his entire career is playing people who are super <laughs> creepy. Uh, so I think it's just something that comes naturally. Uh, but yeah, that guy is not real. There's, there was nobody who ever worked for NASA that was called, you know, Henry Hurt. Um, you know, so, but yeah, we get, uh, this, we're going to like generally meet these guys more as the film goes on, but there's a lot of people who are back and forth in about, you know, different parts of the system. Uh, there's a lot of uh, go, no go in terms of whether or not stuff is being, you know, successful. And we eventually get the launch, uh, which I will say uh, looks okay. I mean, uh, the, when they were on the walkway going into the like into the actual um, rocket, I thought the green screen on that was a little bit dodgy because it's clear it's just some it's like three little guys inside a matte painting. Um, and then when it takes off, the model I don't know if it's model work or CGI at this point, but like the cloud stuff just didn't match what was going on in terms of the rocket launching. But maybe it's just because at this point in my life, I've seen tons and tons of CGI. I um, could watch but, you know, that okay. launch okay. all day, like on a loop. <laughs> I mean, I enjoyed I enjoyed the the, the go no go stuff. I love all that where they're checking the different systems and they're all saying the different names of stuff and you know they're saying that this is okay and that's okay. That's all fun, um, you know. And obviously the kind of the acting inside the module of the guys uh, as they're kind of going up, you know, I think all that's great. Uh, just the occasional cuts outside where the special effects were a little bit dodgy. Once they're in space, the special effects are immaculate, and when they get to the shots of the moon, that is that all that stuff looks great. Um, but I just thought I think you know I I mean I I can kind of I can kind of see your point I think like sometimes when the ice is like you know kind of shaking off of the 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 rocket and stuff it I could say okay you know I can I can maybe buy it looks a little bit but I I don't know I I guess I I think especially for the time they did such an exceptional job that I think it really holds up and I I go along with it even if I may have a few issues and I think one of the reasons that it works so well is because the sound design for this is just top notch I mean it you I mean especially sitting in the theater and just feeling like you were at a a launch with just kind of the rumble going on I mean it was it was intense and I think they did it just uh, I mean, an immaculate job putting that together yeah um, <clears throat> and obviously I think the guys uh, to do this the the um, weightlessness they did the Vomit Comet, comet yep. as it's known. Yeah. The KC-135. Yeah. Where, where, yeah, you go up and you you fly in a parabola, and as you reach the peak of the parabola, you are weightless for something like 55 seconds. No, it's then... less than that. It's <laughs> between 20 and 24 seconds, generally. Because they go, they go up, yeah. and then they nosedive down. It's in that dive that you are weightless. You only have about 20 yeah. seconds. Otherwise, you crash into the earth. <laughs> well, you get a you get a li- you get a little bit weightless as you're reaching the peak. Just yeah. before you get to the peak, you start to get weightless, and then once you hit the top, that's when you're most weightless. And it's then like when you go over one down, of those like bumps you you... in your car, and you're like your stomach kind of goes. Whoa. <laughs> it's like Wee, yeah. Yeah, I know all about this because I'm a big fan of OK Go, and they did a whole video where the entire thing is them being weightless, and they showed the whole process of how they they did it, and they did eight parabolas. Uh, each flight which 
is a lot of <laughs> a lot of like kind of weightlessness um and then i think they did like something like um they did it like 40 times so they they ended up getting a lot of weightlessness well in and... this movie they did it 612 times that's how many dives they did in this movie yeah. Also, the is... fact that they and... built sets on a plane—it's <laughs> kind of mind-boggling <laughs> yeah. to me. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's it's crazy what they accomplished. Saying that the the like the plane that does it, which now you can only here's the irony, uh, fly from Russia to do this. Now they don't do it over here, uh, over here or over there. They don't do it in America anymore. They only do only Russian. There's like a one Russian airline that does it. Um, those 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 planes are quite large in terms of like the internal volume like they're very very big so you can you know the lem is not meant to be that big and the the main like capsule is not meant to be that big so you know the set is actually you know reasonably easy to fit within that particular plane but yeah just doing it hundreds and hundreds of times it is funny because of course as soon as they get into space uh somebody throws up uh, <laughs> which is uh, Fred Hayes. Uh, obviously, this is based on reality. Once they did get into space, Fred Hayes did throw up, and so he denies um, it. Though. And I like he actually denies it. But uh... well, yeah, I guess the other two were like he threw up, and then he was like, "I didn't." And then they were like, "Well, it's too late now. Two against one. This is now reality. It's in a film." Um, yeah, I do like though how Jim Lovell kind of. I don't know, not comforts him, but he's like, look, you know, some of the other guys who flew before, they, you know, like, who kind of did this, they, they threw up nonstop while they were in space. So, like, it's nothing to be ashamed of. You're just thrown up. It's not a problem. It's a pretty like, common thing. It. Like, being in weightlessness is, is weird. <laughs> it's why they it's why they call it the vomit comet. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I, I can't imagine the cleanup job on that every time they take it out. For just a to hose it down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know. It's yeah. just, eesh. Uh, many, I, I wonder how many movies have used it now. I feel like uh, a lot have. I know The Mummy, uh, Tom Cruise's version used it. I know uh, First Man used it. Um, I don't know what else. I'm curious. Well, funnily enough, one of the one of the one of the actors in this appears in a whole bunch of space based movies, including most recently Ad Astra, uh, which some people said was Sad Astra about Dad Astra, um, and uh, and I think they used it in that a little bit as well. Brad Pitt. Um, who, of course, turned down a role in this film uh, to go and make Seven. Um, he eventually got to make a space movie about him missing his dad. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'm guessing they because they uh, there's not a, I mean there's not a huge amount of weightlessness in that from what I remember, but there is a few times where he's kind of transferring between different bits of the spaceship or whatever, and he's he's he a fight a fight a crazy uh, mandrel in one of those ships, doesn't he? In uh, no gravity. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, there's like a crazy monkey, isn't it? That comes flying at him in the... Yep. Yeah. Yep. He gets into a fight. Spoiler alert for the probably the most exciting thing in the entire of Ad Astra. Uh, yeah. And 44 minutes in, Tom Hanks gets a chance to take a pee into space. Uh, you know, I'm guessing that, you know, uh, much, much like um, with uh, The Green Mile... Rita Wilson probably read the script for this and then came running down the street, much like Liv Tyler in that thing you do, <laughs> screaming at the top of her lungs, uh, Tom, you get to pee into space. And he was like... Uh, Another final. chance to pee on film. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And I like how they make up, like, obviously they're, you know, they're about to go live on, on broadcast and I like how they're like, we can't like show how they do, uh, how we do this on TV, you know, but that's obviously the thing that they, they, you know, having a sense of humor, they think it'd be funny to show how they, uh, get rid of waste in space. But I believe uh, that is the comment that astronauts, even to this day, still get, like the question that they get the most often is how do you go to the bathroom in space? 
<laughs> yeah, and the answer is with great difficulty because yeah, carefully most of the digestive system is <laughs> yeah is is run by gravity. So yeah. if you have no gravity, your poop doesn't know where to go. Yep. Um, yeah. So uh, all these problems they hadn't really thought of. <laughs> oh well, I mean they have though. This is the thing, isn't it? Like they've got like a, a little button that's got like release the urine on it. So they you know. They've got it all sorted, uh, mm. and they do make a show of it, like kind of spraying out into space. Constellation, you ride. The, uh, the NASA <laughs> yeah. hose has actually become an inside joke in my family because we we've gone on uh, a couple of trips where uh, to NASA things where they always love to display at NASA um, uh, locations. Oh, he, you know, here's here it is. Here's the here's the toilet. Here's the space toilet. Uh, and it's become a joke now. When I wake up in the morning, I'm tired. I don't want to get up. I'll say, does anyone have the NASA hose they can just bring me so I don't have to get up? It would be a lot easier to bring me the NASA hose, please. Yeah, of all the technology that we use to go to space, why do we not have space toilets on Earth? That's the question. If we can have Make space ice lot- cream and space pens on Earth, why can't we have space toilets? Yeah. Uh, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, uh, of course, this is you know this is the thirteenth of April. This is when this occurs, nineteen seventy. Um, of course. So, <laughs> so and uh, when they go on, they go live onto TV to kind of give a, a little bit of a uh, you know, uh, in, you know, kind of a I don't know what it's called. Like, uh, what is it when you show people around? A somewhere? tour. A tour. A tour. A Damn tour. It. Jesus Christ! How could I not find that word? <clears throat> And they give them a tour of the spaceship, and you know, obviously, this is also another place where we get a little bit of the exposition, you know, so we can we can you know figure out later on why things have gone wrong because they're you know they're explaining that there's two parts to it. One of them is Aquarius, the other one is Odyssey. You know, one is the LEM, the other one is the thing that is propelling them through space to get to the moon. Um, you know, so they're explaining the kind of intricacies, and obviously, at this moment, we get very sad because the networks just. You know, after a few minutes, they're like, oh, OK, this was this was fun, but we've got other stuff that we want to show on TV. <laughs> and so I'm not they even just sure they them. showed it for a few minutes. I think they just didn't go to it at all. They're just like, well, we'll tape it and we'll put some on the news. And nobody. Cares I thought anymore. they started showing it, but they cut it. But uh, maybe I'm misreading that. Well, maybe, um, yeah. It, yeah, it kind of sounds like they're it's not getting yeah. broadcast, but they're filming it anyway. But mostly just to kind of let the astronauts feel like it's still being broadcast. Yeah. Like they don't want to. Make it's them possible feel like NASA they're... didn't know that the, the 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 networks wouldn't carry it either. Yeah, they yeah. they do say to them that they'll tell them um, when they get back. But obviously, yeah, by the time they get back, they have been on TV. A lot. Uh, because, oh, of course, yeah. they landed on the moon very successfully, <laughs> and they walked around, and everybody loved it. Ticker tape praise uh, for everyone. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then, of course, you know, we are getting to what everyone from, knows from this film, uh, when they are asked to turn on an oxygen tank, and uh, it explodes. Um, it's turned on by Kevin Bacon, I think, isn't it? He's the one who's instructed yeah. to, Stir the to, tank. to kind of turn it on. Yeah. yeah, and it explodes, and there's a big noise, and everyone panics, and you know, uh, very and calmly. Stirred those tanks crazily, <laughs> something. And then we get very the world's calmly, most misquoted line. I said, "Shaken, not stirred." <laughs> Jim, Jim Lovell says, "Houston, we have a problem." Um, without much drama, to be honest, that he delivers the line very matter-of-factly, but uh, you know. Uh, it was so well known that they put it onto the poster. But have you listened? Um, have you listened to the the actual audio from the mission? There actually is a website. Uh, it's called uh, I have it here. It's called um, ApolloInRealTime.org/slash thirteen, 
And you can actually listen to all the audio and see videos from the, the mission, from start of the mission, from like launch, all the way till the very end. And I'm always amazed at how matter of fact astro astronauts are, even when everything is just going to hell in a handbasket. Like uh, when 12 got struck by lightning, when it was taking off and they got all kinds of alarms, everybody was super calm and trying to figure out the problem. And then like things are exploding in Apollo 13. It's like, Houston, uh, we've had a problem. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I think you really you really see that when there's that point where they're they aren't paying attention, like with the Vox and everything, and they like forget that it's on, and and it's like because they have a persona that they have to kind of portray when they're on on air and being recorded. And stuff. But that's also that's the really training kicking in. You know, they, they, these these three people yeah, have right. trained for this for countless hours and countless years. This is their ultimate life and career goal. And the whole point of that is for the training to kick in when necessary. And just, you got to just, you have to act. You don't have time to do anything else. Yeah. And they were test pilots and, you know, veterans before yep, that. So right. like they're used to being in very stressful, dangerous situations. Yeah. I mean, we all remember when Ghost Grissom was like, it's getting a little bit warm in here. Um... <laughs> Too soon. Too soon. Wow. <laughs> it's like gall some serious gallows humor there. <laughs> For their research, apparently, you know, the main guys listened to basically all of that, uh, like literally every because they, they wanted it to be accurate. They wanted to make sure that when they were talking, that you know, everything would be accurate, and they, you know, they wouldn't kind of deviate too much from what was actually said. Um, well, that was what was so great is like when they're saying stuff like you know, main bus be undervolt and stuff like that. Like they actually knew what all of that meant, so they were very. Uh, trained so that everything would come out accurate. And I think that's really impressive because, I mean, I don't know what half that stuff is, but I believe <laughs> that they know. And so that's, that's I think, one of the reasons it's carried off so well. Yeah. Um, we see that they're losing oxygen. We see all the warning lights going on. Like you said, they're relatively calm about this whole thing. <laughs> um, and when we get to Mission Control, we find out that the Odyssey is basically uh, dying. Um, and Ecom Liebergott, as played by Clint Howard, um, you know, Cy Liebergott, he suggests that basically they need to close the react cells to stop the leak. Um, and, you know, that's that's what they're advised to do. And they do that. Um, and, you know, both on the ground and in Apollo 13, they realize uh, they're not going to be going to the moon. <laughs> um, unfortunately. Uh, when when uh, um, nobody, nobody delivered. Says, we just lost the moon. I mean, it is just. It's just so devastating. It's, yeah. He delivers it so well. It's just brutal. You can feel the the, the three people uh, in the capsule. What this means, and it's just it's just absolutely brutal to say that. It's well, it's tough to say, but it's also like incredibly flat, frightening because at the same time they're realizing like now it's a fight for our yeah, lives. Yeah, it's not just you know we it's, lost it's the moon. Like crazy we shift. Could yeah, die up here. I mean, much like that tragic situation of uh, George Clooney, lost in space since uh, 2012, something like that. Um, you know, a terrifying way to die, just to float out mm. into the middle of space and nobody to be able to come and pick you up. Um, yeah, uh, this is when obviously they make the choice that they're going to move from Odyssey uh, into the LEM, which is called Aquarius. 
Um, and at this point, you know, the news networks, uh, we, we see Jim Lovell's mom, uh, you know, she because she told everybody in her in her home that, you know, her son's going to be walking on the moon. So they've tuned into the TV and there's nothing about it. Uh, but then the TV all of a sudden is interested as we get the full, you know, the news breaking that Apollo 13 has lost, you know, something's gone wrong. And basically, they're not going to be able to get to the moon. And I mean, these these news broadcasts are extremely well informed on exactly what's happening within the plot of the film, um, which, you know, is an, is a, it's nice because it means that, we you know, it's obviously the easiest way to get exposition out. But uh, still, it's really weird that like two minutes after this happened, the news networks are, have got a breaking news story about everything that's literally been said in uh, Mission Command. Um, well, I think that's interesting because it speaks to a couple things. One, that, I mean, there's obviously a strong connection of uh, like a communication line between NASA and the news networks at this time, even if the news networks haven't been that interested in it, at least we know that the connection's there and that they're hungry for news. I mean, you know, they're looking for any, I think this always holds true with the news. They're just hungry for something different. And all of a sudden it's like, whoa, something different's happening. Let's focus all of our attention on that now. Yeah. Uh, as well as Clint Howard in here, we've also got Mark McClure, who will return in That Thing You Do to work with uh, Tom Hanks, and Chris Ellis, who is playing uh, Deke Slayton, who, of course, will also return in That Thing You Do. Um, Deke, obviously, is the one who is the director of the operations, and so he's the one who's in charge of this particular thing, and he's, you know, he's he's basically kind of uh, the direct boss of the Apollo uh, 13 crew. Um, and it's shown that he's kind of close friends with Jim Lovell. He's the one who kind of told him that he was going to be the next one well, to go up. Deke is an um, astronaut himself. Uh, he was grounded because yes. he had a heart condition. So he was an astronaut, but when he couldn't fly anymore, they just promoted him to be boss of the astronauts, essentially. <laughs> and he, and <laughs> yeah. Deke is the one who decides uh, who goes where when. And, I mean, if you ever see a real picture of Deke Slayton, he, he literally is... Uh, when I can't even remember what the episode of The Simpsons was when when they're like that's a guy whose hair you could set the time by like literally he has the most like military haircut you've ever seen in like his his NASA portrait it is like just complete like it was I the don't late think 60s the, I don't... what did you expect everyone had square or like <laughs> flushed black hair yeah <laughs> I don't I don't think Chris Ellis does it justice in terms of exactly like how square it was um you know well, but, if you yeah. want square like geometric hair just look at head harris oh no yeah well the, i was about to <laughs> yeah, say right, obviously right. you know as things start to go wrong it is you know ed harris uh playing gene kranz who literally comes in with the world's squarest haircut um and you know is is gonna kind of basically keep telling everyone to stop talking because <laughs> because literally every i i don't know if this is just a thing that happens every day in nasa but everyone just keeps talking over each other and trying to explain all their problems to uh to gene and he just has to keep saying guys like one at a time like stop talking over each other and just tell me tell me the, the things that are wrong in an order that i can understand instead of just constantly with all of the you know but i do love all the like all these guys that are playing like the mission control guys they're literally like it's so it's so funny that they're all kind of like doing this kind of like quick talking over each other with tons of like tech, techno babble um it's just it's just wonderful i love the kind of the atmosphere in there the set is great as well everything in there is wonderful um you know and, and the way they kind of they all interact as the, you know as they have to problem solve which is what the rest of this film is going to be now um, well the interesting thing about think, mission control you know, is that for each person who's sitting at a seat in there like ecom and everything like that 
they only represent like they're only one representative of a large team because in rooms yeah. in the back outside of mission control that's why they have like they're in their headsets they talk to each other in mission control but they also talk to their teams back in the room so you hear them talking all the time but they're not talking to each other they're talking to other rooms so there's a lot of overlapping voices as well they're not necessarily overlapping because they're not talking to each other <laughs> yeah yeah, which which is yeah, which is funny because obviously when he's asking for problems, they're asking their guys for problems. The guys are telling him the problems, and then they're all just repeating it back. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, in, um, in amongst them, we have Ecom John Aaron, um, who will become very important as this goes on. Uh, played by Lauren Dean, who is an actor I think I've seen in a couple of films, um, but he has this kind of I don't know, like he just likes kind of science fictiony space stuff because um, you know after this he did Gattaca and then he did Space Cowboys. You know, um, hey, he was in that Astra, and so he's in that Astra. Yeah, <laughs> so right. it comes full circle. Like, yeah, so it's like that's right. I just, I just, I mean, I do like. I mean, his performance as John Aaron is probably one of my favorite. As I was watching this, like every time he kept coming on, I was like, this guy like is really getting across the idea of a guy who just wants to like solve the problem. And well, John you know, Aaron despite, was like, like a hero of NASA because he was the guy who solved the problem. Oh yeah, with, uh, Apollo Apollo twelve when it got struck by lightning as well. So. And I have to say, like a fun Susan fact, is that uh, in my earlier years when I was watching this movie, out of all the actors in this movie, he was the one I had a crush on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, did you see Ad Astra because you knew he was in it? I You're like, actually, oh, it's I a guy. I have seen it. I'm going to write it down. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it's a it's a fun. There's, a, there's like a whole weird like um, uh, Moon Pirates thing that suddenly comes in halfway through the film. It's just like. It's just out of nowhere. You're like, what the hell is going on in this film? Uh, but yeah, no, he's a uh, like he's like he's so good in this. Like you know, like I said, I think I've seen him in a couple of other films. Like not that where I've really noticed him. I can't say I even noticed him in Ad Astra uh, or even in Gattaca. And I saw that at the cinema and I had it on DVD and I've watched it quite a few times. Um, uh, but I recognized him in Gattaca because oh. I loved him so much in this film. See, there like, you go. I, I, he's, he stood out here, and so I was like, oh, that's that guy. I, I just Googled him, and I just realized he plays Joe in Say Anything, uh, who is uh, the yes, uh, that's right. boyfriend uh, that uh, <laughs> invades the soul of uh, um, uh, Lily Taylor's character. Yeah. And yeah. Don't you even think it. <laughs> he's... he's He's also the title character in Billy Bathgate, which is weird because like there are like at least six people above the title, and none of them are this guy. Um, so he's the title character of that film, uh, you know. Uh, but yeah, uh, I think I remember him from Enemy of the State. He was again; it was like a gaggle of like young guys who were all t- talking over each other constantly. Um, oh, I forgot he was in that one. Yeah, uh, I love Enemy of the State. It's a fun film. Oh, it's great. Yeah. You know, Will Smith, probably one of the few actors who could challenge Tom Hanks in terms of having a streak of really good films. Uh, it depends how much you like Bad Boys and Bad Boys 2, though, um, on that particular <laughs> count. Uh, yeah, so we, we, we start to get, we, you know, we're obviously going to have to get some problem solving because, um, you know, uh, they've lost oxygen. Uh, they've moved into the Aquarius. You know, it's on the news that things are going wrong. And they kind of, they don't really have control of the trajectory uh, uh, where they're going at the moment, they're going to end up going around the moon, coming back and basically crashing into something or bouncing off the atmosphere of the Earth. <laughs> like, you know, there's there's a few kind of extremely bad scenarios that are going on or just floating out into space and never coming back. Yeah, never heard um, from again. Yeah, and so the, they obviously have to do a control burn to get themselves pointed in the correct direction so they can get pulled by the gravity of the moon. Um, 
so that they will then come around from the dark side and then you know end up back heading towards earth um and so there's a whole bunch of calculations that are done by uh, a bunch of guys in white shirts all wearing glasses it seems to me um and all talking um you know uh, various technical language um obviously they they you know they're gonna have to try and figure out how they can get to um earth and you know they're communicating with the astronauts but also on the module the astronauts themselves realize that they're gonna have to figure out a way how they can get back to earth um and you know first of all they're gonna have to head to the dark side of the moon um and you know we get a kind of touching sequence as the moon comes into sequence uh you know comes into view and uh, Jim Lovell, you know, says to the other guys, you know, as he floats away from the window, do you want to take a look at it? Um, you know, and, you know, they've got this close. Obviously, Jim's already seen it, you know, once you've seen the moon. Well, that's that's a powerful moment, though, because, oh, I mean, yeah, you know, because, yeah. I mean, these these two have never been here before. And they're like so excited to see all the stuff that, oh, that's that was where we were going to be landing and all this stuff. And they're super excited. And he's just like, yeah, I've seen it. And then that whole like, what are your intentions? bit? I mean, it's just. Yeah, yeah. Really I, I was powerful. wondering what the, great stuff from Tom you know, is now that they're not going, especially for the two who had not been out there before. You know the the just the you know they have to focus obviously on getting home, but you know do you know if they allow themselves ten seconds to just look at you know out the window and what might have been, is it better to look at it and say, all right, well at least I saw the moon in person from this close, or is it just so painful because you know you may not get another chance at this even if you survive i don't even want to look out that window i just i can't even look at it it's just too painful that i'm not going to be landing down there well there is a there is a bit of trivia on imdb so take it you know with (laughs) salt um that says um the statement gentlemen what are your intentions my order to go home has to have us a little bit of context says while level actually said this it seems slightly forced out of place this is because when he said it on the mission they were just coming up uh, coming out from the far side of the moon and had a critical engine burn coming up since it was Jack Swigert and Fred Hayes' first mission, they were taking pictures instead of preparing for the burn. That's why Level said the line, adding, if we don't get home, you won't be able to have your pictures developed. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, it, uh, I think it's lost in the movie that it's like, okay, you're doing this, but there are other things that you know are mission critical that we need to do right now. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I mean, I think they're allowing the emotional beat of... The, you know, particularly when they're like, "There's the landing site. That's where we were going to land. Well, like, we were going to be walking." There's a lot that. of emotional liberties taken in this movie, and Ron Howard did speak yeah. to it because I think uh, some of the astronauts were taking a little bit of exception about like the arguing between like Fred Hayes and Jack Swigert, for example. They said like that never happened, and it would never happen. Like the uh, even in a situation this tough, this stressful, it would not happen. But I think Ron an- Ron uh, Howard's answered was something along the lines of, "There's only so many times a close-up of someone's sweaty forehead can portray stress." You have to, you know, get it across in the movie somehow. And these astronauts were like, haha, okay, yeah, we get it. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Liberties are taken, but they had to be taken. It's based on a true story. It's not a documentary. Yeah. Yeah, right. Um, Big difference. Yeah. And so, you know, obviously they go past the landing site. They're a little bit wistful about the fact that that's where they would have landed. I think, is, is this where um, Jim kind of visualizes himself landing on the moon and getting out of the lander, um, you know, and stepping on the moon? skipping along yeah and you know yeah it's, it's well because they also see like the the track marks don't they from where uh the, i think the other guys have been and so they're like oh you know they definitely went on the moon you know like they're seeing the evidence right in front of them <laughs> it's like there's the footprints yeah. of the guys who went before us and we're not going to get a chance to go and make a mess of them the list uh, well and 
Oh, go ahead. Nate, I was go just going to say the, the list of, because uh, I was going through the trivia on IMDb and then also the goofs on IMDb and the list of uh, people who clearly know more about this than any of us will ever know. Uh, we're always pointing out like, well, this was on the other side of the moon. And they couldn't see this from here. And they couldn't see that from here. This is a long, long, exhaustive list of all the things that are wrong with this movie. <laughs> <laughs> and here's the funny thing. While we call it the dark side of the moon, we have sent plenty of like you know, satellites to the other side of the, the dark side of the moon and took photos of it. It's not that dark. Um, it's darker. So yeah, they, <laughs> they, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's just gray, really. Uh, they, they, <laughs> they, uh, they go to the, past the dark side of the moon, they go past the landing site. And then of course, this is where, um, you know, John Aaron is like, you, you're using up too much power. Like, you know, we, we, you were like, we've, t- you know, we managed to kind of, um, you know, triage things, but you're just going to have to turn like pretty much everything off until you're ready to land because otherwise you're going to be dead in space and there's nothing we're going to be able to do about it. Um, and of course, you know, Ed Harris is like, uh, fellas, can we kind of sort this out? Uh, and it is fellas because there's, it's just rooms full of guys wearing white shirts. White shirts, black ties. Um, yeah. And he says, you know, failure is not an option, uh, which is true. It isn't because, if they fail, they're going to be dead. Which apparently <laughs> so. Gene Kranz never never actually said, but he loved it so much yeah. he named his autobiography that. <laughs> <laughs> I would like just to state that uh, failure is not an option. Uh, to me, calls uh, to mind uh, a very famous line from other Tom Hanks movies, the whole no toy left behind that would uh, start coming up in the Toy Story movies, which you have obviously not covered yet, but uh, sort of kind of similar uh vibe yeah right. no toy left behind failure is not an option i can totally see that yeah all this weird because like no toy left behind i'm almost certain that george w bush saw that and was like no child <laughs> left behind uh, and, uh you know makes sense being the webs as, we weave yeah uh, makes sense being as as a full-grown adult he seemed to be able to barely read a child's book uh roughly i don't know 20 years ago around this time um <laughs> Yes. So, you know, I just, but before we go too much farther, I just I just want to call out that like at in this moment also, we have a great uh, kind of a, a payoff of what we had as a, as a setup right at the beginning of the film when they're at the party of that shot of him holding up his arm and looking comparing the size of his thumbnail to the moon and kind of that whole blocking it off and stuff just to kind of look at it. And then here we have that reverse of that and it's i don't know i feel it's a really powerful payoff when he's doing the same thing with the earth and you kind of see that shot here it's like yeesh just imagine like how far you are from actual safety it's uh i don't know really put things put things in perspective and also of course earlier in the film jim lovell you know said to his uh kid he was like it's going to take us four days to get there so yeah. Uh, you know, you like so you, we've right. kind of got like in in the back of our minds, we know it's going to take them four days to get home, <laughs> and they've got no right, power yeah. on the first day. So it's like you know, um, they then call in Ken Mattingly because they need somebody to kind of you know run through scenarios in the practice capsule um, and figure out the correct sequence of doing things so that they can land. Um, and the procedure he's going to come up with is obviously very exciting. Um, you know, that's going to be the main thing that they're going to, that's going to save them. And so of course him and John Aaron are going through it and he's like, how many steps are there? And John Aaron's like 20 and Mattingly's like, that's way too many steps. <laughs> like, you know, we're not going to have the time to execute every single one of them. So let's get it to the bare minimum of what we can do so that we can make sure it can land successfully. 
Um, and also, by the way, we can only use, uh, what is it, 20, 20 amps of power <laughs> is like the max. Um, and at the moment, every one of their scenarios is using it like 30 or 40 or something. So they're basically going to run out of power before they even get a chance uh, to get into the atmosphere and make sure the parachutes deploy. Um, and so, you know, with the computer shut down, there's another thing that kind of comes up straight away, which is the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. <laughs> you know, if you're in a tiny one thing space, after another. Yeah, it's really <laughs> there. I mean, you know, that film about the incredible, horrible, bad day or whatever. I mean, I don't think it's got anything on this. And yeah, so <laughs> at this point, you know, they're realizing that the CO2 is going to be an issue because obviously, you know, they blew the oxygen tanks. And so there's not enough oxygen mixing into the air so they can get rid of the CO2. Um, and so uh, this is, I think, where Xander Berkeley enters the film, um, you know, uh, trying to kind of say to a Jim Lovell's wife, by the way, or the press wants to sit outside right now. <laughs> so do you mind if they do that? And obviously she's not happy with that because they weren't interested in them when they were landing on the moon. So they can't just suddenly be interested because they think they're going to die. So she's not happy with that. Um, what I do like, I don't know if it's now, but I think it's slightly later, isn't it, where they've got, um, they have Neil Armstrong and Buzzle from Visit Jim's Mom to... Uh, kind of reassure her and I like how she's like you know are you boys in the space program too yes (laughs) (laughs) yeah I like how it's just so great and that's and that's Ron Howard's mom mom. and her uh, his dad is in the scenes at the end he plays a priest yep yeah with a wedding ring I did uh, yeah I did (laughs) I did I I did think to myself that guy's getting a lot of play you know the priest is all of a sudden very prominent but of course it makes sense when you know who it is uh but yeah no she's wonderful as uh as as his mom she's like you know, like I said earlier, she was like promising people that he was going to be walking on the moon. And, and now, obviously, she's having to be reassured. Uh, but yeah, like, you know, there's a lot of back and forth between the the stuff with uh, Marilyn, where obviously she's, you know, she's not happy. You know, she's obviously on edge with the whole thing. You know, her husband's basically in a tiny little, like, kind of metal box in space. Um, a death but I, capsule I, you at know, this point. <laughs> pretty much. Jeez, yeah. Uh, yeah. But I do like, I mean, Kathleen Quinlan was nominated for this uh, performance. And I do think she is, you know, she's a highlight, like, you know, the, the, the way that she's not happy with the fact that the press are all of a sudden interested in her husband because he might die, um, you know, and her kind of outrage. I think it's, you know, it's really well, it's really well done. Well, it's a difficult of... position for the wives to be like super supportive of their husbands because it's, it's expected, but they're super supportive with something that they hate that they do. And I think she brings yeah. that across very well in this movie. Like I, I I don't like this at all, but it's what you really, really want. So I'm going to support you 100% and take care of everything at home while you go off and do everything else. So she plays that uh, yeah. that conflict very well, I think, without stating it, you know? Yeah, wife characters so often, unfortunately, just don't have much to yeah. do. Uh, and even in this film, I mean, you look at some of the other wives, they don't have that much to do. But it, So it's great when it's you actually feel like they actually spent time working on the character yeah. and writing it and developing it in a, in a strong into something strong. So I I, I really in the in the, uh, the HBO series yeah. uh, from the Earth to the Moon, which I highly recommend everyone see. Um, they actually do one full episode on uh, the astronaut wives. Yeah, that's great. About how they ABC speak. went hmm? one further and they did a whole TV show called Astronauts Wives. Uh, yes, that's true. Um, which was not a great show, but there were some great actresses in it. And so I did end up watching every single episode. But a lot of it was like, you know, if you knew who the like, if you knew the fact that basically all these guys divorced all these women, it was a weird show to watch. But it was, I mean, I remember um, reading about um, how um, someone had to go like one of the wives got a call from NASA when uh, when Gus Grissom was killed and she had to go and. 
go and go and be with Betty Grissom, um, but not tell her why she was there until the NASA people showed up oh. to tell her. So yeah, like it, it was a it, it like it, it that was is a, on it that was show. A, it was a tough gig. That moment. Yeah. Yeah. It was a tough yeah. tough gig. It's interesting that they yeah because they they ask so much of the wives, but they're not actual employees. It's just it's it's like a, an emotional support that they almost are required to be. As just because their husband is a part of this program. And it's not just um, even just emotional support. Time, yeah. They essentially become single parents. Because so their husbands are the, away right. so much. Some yeah. of the wives did actually manage to get NASA to pay them money. <laughs> so, awesome. Uh, while, their, while their husbands were in space, they were like, how am I meant to provide for my kids? And NASA were like, I don't know. And they were like, give us money. <laughs> and so some of them did actually manage to like, in agreement for like taking part in NASA stuff, they were able yeah. to kind Smart. of get some salaries out of NASA uh you know so yeah um but yeah you know like they what i like is this is this is where we see the guys behind the scenes who were be, you know behind the headsets uh doing some problem solving and they're like here's all the stuff that they've got up there um they're about to die because they're all going to be poisoned by co2 we literally have so, to put around you know a square peg in a round yeah square hole. peg into a round hole <laughs> yeah so it's like get and I like how they just dump stuff out and they're like, make it work. And then they all get to they all get to work. And then, of course, they instruct the, the guys on the, um, you know, uh, in space to, to kind of, you know, I don't know make a, like a long tube with this box. And there's a whole bunch of kind of, you know, duct taping stuff together. Like take off sock. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's, there's a whole bunch of kind of just kind of yammering it all together. And then eventually the CO2 levels start to drop and they're like, you know, but I love how like all the guys you know, are like good. you know bringing this contraption into um, mission control and like bits are falling off it as they're running and there's like <laughs> pages of procedures. It's just a mess. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, and and, and, Ray, and I love. Uh, I think Ray McKinnon is in. I think he's in this scene as one of the guys running around. Yeah, uh, like with the chalkboard and everything and. Uh, he's just one of those faces that I've always loved seeing. Uh, popped up in some Coen Brothers movies and stuff, and uh, and you'll get to talk about him uh, when you get to News of the World again. Yes, eventually. Eventually, so, yeah, <laughs> a little ways down the road. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember him being in um, Ford versus Ferrari, which over here was called yes. Le Mans '66. Uh, oh, was it really? Yeah, it, <laughs> yeah. They changed the name. I think it was called that in a bit of um, a bit of Europe as well. Um, and also I remember, well, um, yeah, I remember him vaguely in mud and of course he's in Oh Brother as well. Uh, yeah. obviously the Coen brothers had a completely different effect on Tom Hanks's career. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he also apparently appears in Dolphin Tale along with the judge from Bonfire of the Vanities. So, um, yeah, uh, I saw Last Ride at the cinema, but I don't remember him being in it, but I do remember him playing, uh, Phil Remington in Ford versus Ferrari slash Le Mans 66 uh, yeah he's a good actor and and as a, and a not quite connection to Kevin Bacon he was in the Footloose remake <laughs> uh, yeah along with uh, apparently walking disease lab Miles Teller um, so they they are it's requested that the astronauts get some sleep because obviously while they're awake they're going to be doing a hell of a lot more breathing than if they're asleep because obviously when you're asleep you breathe slightly less so less CO2, uh, which means that their contraption that has fixed this this issue will be less under pressure. And this is where Jim gets mad because, you know, he's sick of them monitoring his kidney levels or whatever. And so he rips off his uh, his little things that have been monitoring him, his biomed sensors. Can I just uh, say then... that that flight surgeon is another character that I want to punch in the face? 
<laughs> I've never I, like I work with doctors, and I've never seen one so as hysterical as this, uh, this flight surgeon. Again, I don't think he's based on anyone real. Oh, this, God, that's I hope so. the, the, anyone who's anyone who's not completely um, competent in this film is is based is just fake. Um, you know, so yeah, uh, so he obviously thinks that for some, you know, the, the the fellas join in and they also take off theirs in solidarity with Jim, and obviously the doctor on the ground thinks that they're all dying or something, um, <laughs> and it obviously takes the square head of Ed Harris to go, nah, nah, just like, just no, <laughs> just no, <laughs> yeah, back off, you know, like don't be so worried. We've got enough problems. Um, don't become hysterical. Yeah, you know, which, I mean, I think those biomed sensors would have been helpful, but I guess, you know, uh, Jim has just had enough, which I can understand, because, you know, it's five days in space and he didn't even get to walk on the bloody moon. So, you know, uh, I can understand that he's a bit angry at that. Uh, We get to day six, and uh, is this where the argument takes place on the spaceship, I think, where they're all yelling at each other? Um, Because, obviously... In Tom, boxes on, yeah. Yeah, in Tom Hanks's contract, he <laughs> has to yell at least once in a film. And he hasn't done much yelling in this, to be honest. He's been very, very calm. So, uh, you know, this is where... Uh, is it uh, Kevin Bacon who's like, the angle's off? And so, you know, he thinks they're all going to die. <laughs> Which, you know, not far from the truth. I mean, that was a possibility um, at that particular moment. Um and so obviously he's talking about they need to redo the calculations because they're not going to come in at the right angle. Um, and, you know, they start kind of yelling at each other. And then, you know, Jim is like, stop yelling at each other. Like, you know, let's let's just calm down a bit. You know, we'll talk to NASA. They'll love, give us the procedure. I love his line of uh, there's like a thousand things that have to happen in order. We're on number eight. You're talking about yeah. 692. <laughs> yeah. So great acting from Kevin Bacon, though, of course, you know, he's, you know, like they're kind of him and Bill Paxton. They're both like Tom Hanks, obviously, is the focus of this podcast. Um, you know, this isn't, but they, I this mean, isn't they, having a slice they of do, bacon. Um, no, but they do play it well here. At, yeah. You know, this tension that has been building with his character, right? Because there's it, it, you feel like Hayes blames him a little bit for the whole thing. And, and so I think that it, it comes to a head well, because, yeah, I mean. He, as far as he knows, he was doing exactly what he was supposed he to do. But it's like everything happened when he flipped that yeah. switch. Yeah, yeah, it's like, did he do something wrong? And I can imagine, like in his shoes, like feeling like, did I do something else? Like, you know, I can imagine that constant feeling of kind of like plagued memory. Like, did what did I accidentally flip something else? Like, well, I think there's also like in the, how in frustrating the movie, that not so much in real life, but in the movie, it's implied that he feels he feels like the replacement. You know, like if, yeah. if Ken yeah. had been here, if Ken had been here, and I think that Fred Hayes is, he doesn't, doesn't say it out loud, but, you know, if Ken had been here, this wouldn't have happened kind of blame as well. Yeah. So. Exactly. yeah, I mean, this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's exactly what it feels like. It feels like because he was in the last minute that, you know, he wasn't rehearsing with them for months and months and months like everybody else. Uh, you know, he does. Yeah, feel this that. goes back to, Every- I mean, even um, movie time at this point it might be almost an hour ago already. But even back when they're still uh, right after that, we find out Maddie Lee can't go and uh, Swigert's replacing him. And they show the three of them in the simulator. And it was a great bit of direction and acting because the mood had been so jovial with the original three crew. Uh, but then when Mattingly's replaced by Swigert and they show them in the simulator, it's clearly much less jovial. Um, you can see that everyone's very tense. And so this is kind of the payoff to that, that obviously they don't blame Swigert for 
Mattingly not being on the flight. I mean, he had nothing to do with that, but still, he's the replacement for their close co-worker and their close friend. And there's that thing in the back of their mind of, boy, I hope that he is a good enough replacement because ultimately the word is replacement. He's replacing someone, which implies that they were not the number one, they were the number two. And so now here is this huge thing that happens and the natural human nature is, oh, if Mattingly was here, I bet that wouldn't have happened. And, and so this is that payoff of that tension that's been building really since the three of them were in that simulator uh, for the first time. Yeah. Which, which is com completely manufactured for the film, though, because Swigert was extremely competent and Lovell had every confidence in him. He actually wrote the malfunction procedures for NASA. So he was a very competent pilot. So a, a lot of that is just for dramatic effect. But it's well done. Oh, yeah. Like, he, like he, you know, his specialism was landing modules, basically. That yeah. was, he was the guy who wrote the book on that. <laughs> so, Literally wrote the book like, on it. <laughs> let, me, yeah. let me take a moment so, here, since they've been mentioned a few times in the last few minutes. Uh, the word procedures has been mentioned and manuals. And I just want to state that as someone whose job is a standard procedures writer, look how important standard procedures are, people. We would not have gotten these three people back. <laughs> standard procedures are very, very important. Read your standard procedures. Thank you. I could just imagine you, Eric, wandering through Mission Control, just like slow, lovingly caressing all the binders behind Gene Kranz. You know, what you need to do is on page 44. I don't know if you read it or not, but if you go to page 44, then I'll tell you exactly what you need. I believe it's paragraph two. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, you know, they're slightly out of, they're not going to be landing in the right place if they stay at their current, you know, angle. So they're ready to do the control burn. And of course, you know, they do a control burn. They get themselves back into the correct angle. Um, and then, you know, we find out that Ken is having no luck because <laughs> basically his procedure uses up too much electricity. And so he's going to start all over again, um, you know, and, you know, start from scratch and try and come up with something. Um, uh, when they ask for the procedure, because obviously they're getting a little bit nervous, uh, you know, with the, the fact that they might die, um, you know, kind of Deke has to come in and tell them, you know, Kenny's working on it. And that kind of, you know, that kind of calms them down a bit because they're like, OK, we know Ken. He's Ken, a buddy Ken of Ken is working on it. Oh, OK. Yeah. Yeah. OK. All right. then. I guess we'll just float around in space for a little bit more. I thought the other NASA um, losers were working on it. But Ken's working on it. Then. It's perfectly fine. <laughs> yeah. Oh, as long as Ken's in the case. You wouldn't then... catch Ken in a white shirt and a tie. Like, don't tell him he's actually wearing a white shirt at the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, of course, this is where James Taylor comes in and he sings Fire and Rain. Oh, wait there, no, I'm thinking of Deep Space Home. <laughs> I'm like, wait um, a minute. <laughs> my favorite my favorite ever episode of The Simpsons, I would guess. Um, uh, but yeah, no, it's funny because earlier, obviously, they played Spirit in the Sky instead of, um, uh, you know, the 2001 theme, uh, which I'm not going to say because... Um, it played in Turner and Hooch, I think, uh, in that episode. And I had a German guest and he said the, the name correctly. So I'm not going to even attempt it. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, you know, they're obviously trying to reassure them that they will have the procedure. The, the procedure is going to be fine. They're going to get them down. Um, and they come up with an idea that basically because they haven't got enough power, uh, they need to take the power from, I think it's from Odyssey to Aquarius. Um, and then dump Odyssey and land in Aquarius. Um, I just like to say, as so a Star need... Trek fan, they literally reverse the polarity. Yes. <laughs> uh, and when they do that, they run through the procedure, and Ken it finds out that basically, yes, it will work. They won't use too much power. Um, also, by the way, I don't have the measles. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, right. Yeah, and obviously uh, John Aaron is extremely excited because they, you know, they can now like kind of finally tell them the procedure. Um, and I like here how we get a little bit of like uh, interaction between uh, Kevin Bacon and Gary Sinise because obviously, you know, uh, as we said, uh, Jack Swigert wrote the book, but this is a completely different book that didn't exist previously, and so they're having to rewrite it. <laughs> so um, I like how they, as they're going through the procedure, we see the kind of the fatigue that is taking over him. Is kind of you know Kevin Bacon does it nice and subtly where he's like you know would you mind just repeating it because i didn't think i got it and you know just kind of the way that he like has little bits of paper that he puts over stuff so that he'll know the correct procedure and, and the post-it you know, note that says no over the buttons that eject the lamb. <laughs> <laughs> like don't yeah. eject the lamb that would be bad don't do it <laughs> but i i like as well how he kind of he i don't know if they're excuses but he says you know like you know uh, i'm feeling a little bit tired you know there's a bit of condensation on some of the dials you know like He's just basically having him kind of go over it. And obviously, I think Ken realizes what he's trying to say without saying it. And he's like, you know, I don't mind, you know, like we'll go through it as many times as we need to to make sure that you've got it correctly. Uh, you know, because obviously this is, you know, this is life or death for them. Um, well, there's also a really you know. very real concern that the thing would, the whole thing would just short out because of so much condensation. Oh, yeah. So he's about to put on like a fuse, like the buzz is the fuse. He's essentially, you know, pushing a button that's going to, start electricity running back through the plane and he's like am i gonna die like have i survived this long and i just get zapped at the end because <laughs> that would just be sad yeah uh there is also a bit of hugging going on uh because obviously it's freezing cold in this module because they're out in space space is not a warm place unless you know if you didn't realize that um, you know, as much as every Star Trek show has people on nice, warm, uh, you know, various enterprises or defiance, um, you know, or voyages, um, space is not warm. And, you know, uh, Bill Paxton needs some hugging from Tom Hanks to warm himself back up before they get themselves ready to, you know, make this re-entry. Um, He's also sick, which doesn't help. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's... The worst place to get. Yeah, you don't set. want to be having a urinary tract infection. I, I in can't space. imagine. <laughs> no, no. Um, but you know, much as much as uh, you know, the fact that as well, the doctor on the ground seems like a bit of an idiot. So, <laughs> so they can't even really call him. Uh, yeah, and we get to day seven, and they are getting ready to you know follow through the procedure and get themselves back down. Um, and obviously, you know, this is now finally being covered like twenty four seven by the new shows. Uh, and we're given, you know, the information that as they enter the atmosphere, they'll lose contact for three minutes. And if they don't make contact after three minutes, we are to assume that they have burned up and they're all dead. Because there uh, may or may not be damage to their heat shield because of where the explosion yeah. occurred. And yeah, and also like the heat shields are built for a specific purpose, which is like, you know, landing on the moon and getting back off the moon. Uh, you know, they're not sure if they're actually hold up to the the process of just basically coming straight back in for a direct entry. No, they they land um, in the capsule that's supposed to land on Earth. The lamb the lamb doesn't have heat shields because it doesn't need it because it's purely a spaceship. It never enters atmosphere. So the but the the side of the panel the, on the command module that blew up all went all the way up to their heat shield. So if the, if any of the tiles were damaged, as we sadly saw with um, with the space shuttle that was destroyed, like reentry. You need your intact. More than one shuttle. Well, no. Well, Didn't they lose two? Oh, the second shuttle wasn't heat shields, was it? It was. The, the, um, well, Challenger was uh, was a solid rocket booster seal that uh, yes. unsealed because of the cold yeah. in Florida. 
but was Columbia? Was Columbia was destroyed, right? Yeah, Columbia um, was a heat Yeah, shield, that was that was because of ice yeah. fell falling and cracking the shields and uh, the the tiles. So if, if you have a hole, then yeah. the fire gets through and then which you is, all die. So which is which is odd because I guess obviously everyone will be watching this film knowing about Challenger, but not known about Columbia. So yeah, <laughs> so, uh, he, yeah. he shows so now, very important. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you know, this is where Tom Hanks obviously says it's been a privilege flying with you to his uh, two fellow uh, pilots uh, as they start re-entry and they lose radio contact, and then obviously for three minutes—I don't think it's exactly three minutes on screen—but you know, for kind of roughly that time, everyone is holding their breath as we wait for them to make contact. The three minutes come and go, and there's no contact made, um, and then about a minute later, we hear, "Do you read me?" And everyone goes crazy and celebrates. <laughs> um, that you know. plays really well, considering this is a story that, I mean, was history. We all knew this was a thing that had happened. Yeah. I mean, it's surprisingly effective. Like, it really has built to a point watching really this film that you tension. actually, you totally yeah. feel it. Yeah, it works exceptionally the way that, uh, and especially because it is that ionization blackout is so long. It's just, and you're seeing everybody's faces. They're sitting here waiting for a word. I mean, it's, it's yeah, this is what I meant when I said yeah. before how even knowing what happened because it's a true story being on the edge of my seat this was the specific scene that really just like it, it was really incredible it was an incredible scene yeah this leads to and one also, of my of course, favorite imdb little, little trivia nuggets oh uh, go for it after the premiere of the film director ron howard asked the audience members to write reviews for the film while most of the reviews were positive one review stated that there was no way the crew would have survived the mission apparently the person who wrote it did not know the film was based on a true story <laughs> <laughs> jeez <laughs> This is unbelievable. I don't believe this. Yeah, this this could never happen. There's no way that they no way they could survive this. Just makes no sense. There's no way that NASA, which is literally filled with people who have at least two degrees just to get in the door, could even solve any of these problems. Um, yeah. So uh, in the background, we have uh, Bryce Dallas Howard. You know, we got Rance Howard here. Uh, we obviously have uh, Gene Howard as well. Um, and then in the middle of all this, uh, probably my favorite moment is when the eldest daughter, who obviously earlier in the film was not concerned with her dad in space, but was more concerned with the fact that the Beatles had <laughs> <Great> broken scene. <laughs> up. Um, <laughs> uh, she now comes over and sits next to her mom and, you know, obviously is in tears, you know, obviously realizing what's happening. Um, and I like that, obviously, at, th- at this point, um, this is when Marilyn squeezes her son a little too hard. <laughs> and He's like, mom. My head's going to pop off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, she, she's feeling very tense. Um, yeah. So the celebration is wonderful. Um, you know, Odyssey makes contact. Uh, Mission Control goes nuts in a GIF that everyone has probably seen for the last, like, 25 years. Um, since they invented GIFs, this is probably one of the premier GIFs of just everybody celebrating. I'm pretty sure I still um, celebrate at the end as well. Like, hands in the air, like, woo! Yeah. <laughs> <Forget> yeah. <it. laughs> you know. Yeah, and uh, we then, of course, you know, as the astronauts are rescued uh, from their capsule out in the middle of the sea, um, you know, and put onto the, what is the um, aircraft carrier that picks them up? Iwo Jima. The Iwo Jima. Iwo Jima, yes, of course. I thought of that because, obviously, of uh, Space Cowboys and uh, Clint Eastwood. I was like, oh, yes, right. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, so, uh, you know, they get on there, and then, obviously, you know, uh, Jim Lovell gives uh, uh, a voiceover uh, Tom Hanks is like you know 
while, other, while he's being greeted by, by the, the real Jim, Jim Lovell. Lovell. Yeah. yeah. Who's the cap, who plays the captain? <laughs> yeah. Well, they wanted to make him an admiral of the Iwo Jima, but he's, he told Ron Howard, I retired as a captain, and a captain I will be. So he was Captain yeah. Jim Lovell. <laughs> uh, yeah, and also uh, Roger Corman jumps in here for a, uh, an appearance out of nowhere. So, Roger Corman? I mean, uh, yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah. 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 <laughs> He, he's uh, he's uh, he, actually no, I think he's uh, earlier, isn't he? When he's they much do, earlier, when they yeah. give him the tour, yeah. yeah, yeah. When they give him the tour, Roger Coleman pops up. He's the he's the one who's talking to uh, uh, to uh, Jim Lovell. He plays a tight-fisted senator, I believe. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but yeah, also uh, the real Marilyn Lovell is also there amongst the uh, amongst the spectators. So you know, a lot of uh, a lot of family in here, um, and I you know the voiceover is basically like uh, yeah. Th- I never went back to space. Uh, the other guys didn't go back to space. <laughs> um, you know, what uh, Ken Manningly. Ken uh, Manningly was yeah. uh, command module pilot for yeah. sixteen, I believe. I mean, I mean, the other guys who were on Apollo thirteen didn't go back to space. Mm. Oh, okay, okay. yeah. Um, you know, that's that's what his summation is. Is like yeah. they they didn't. You know, they retired. Um, Jack Swigert got elected and then died of cancer before he could take his seat. Um, and, Ish. you know, yeah, Ken Mattingly did eventually go up into space. Um, and, you know, probably after that divorced his wife because that <laughs> seems to be what they all did. Um, I don't think they mentioned that. And it kind of ends. It's really weird because it kind of ends with Jim Lovell being like, I wonder if we'll ever go back to space. And <laughs> like, no, not to space, to know, the like, moon. Well, yes, to the moon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, obviously, knowing that the last, like, I don't know, 1974 or something was the last time that somebody actually stepped on the moon. Um, so, uh, which I think was, was it 18? Apollo 18 was the last uh, one? Apollo to get to 17 the moon. was the last one, and it 17. was 1972, December 1972. Yeah. yeah. 18 was the, uh, the movie. That is what I'm thinking <laughs> of. Yeah. I'm thinking of the Fake horror movie, movie right. Apollo 18. Yes. Yes. <laughs> which was a secret mission to go to the moon. I'm confusing myself. Um,. But yeah, so you know, we we basically get Jim Lovell being like, "When will we ever go back to the moon?" And then you know, I don't know. Fifteen years later, they're like, "The shuttles keep blowing up. We can't go back to the moon." <laughs> so, sorry. Um, and then there was also a very famous quote from Buzz Aldrin, which you know, flat earthers and various other lunatics quote, where he says, "We don't have the technology to go back," which is correct. At this particular moment in time, NASA does not have any of the the technology to create another. Um, you know, uh, LEM it just doesn't exist. You know, um, they also don't have makes the rockets the for that kind of payload either. Yeah, they haven't got the rockets to send them up. So yes, at the moment, America cannot go back to the moon uh, unless you are, of course, um, a villain. Because apparently, in this film, heroes get to go to space and come back. But recently, the only people going into space are villains. For a heartbeat so... there, I thought you were referencing Moonraker. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm referencing the billionaires who are profiting off who the keep... labor of people and then spending that money to almost get as far as Yuri Gagarin did 60 years ago. If only they were going to um, space and not come back. Yes. Uh, yeah. If only we could have another Apollo 13, but, you know, they would have no one on the ground to do any of the calculations because neither of their companies, you know, have any NASA experience. Um, so it's just like, oh, I'm sorry, Jeff. Unfortunately, we cannot bring you back. How about this? Turn off all the power and just float away for us. Uh, so, yeah. And that's where the film ends. Obviously, Tom Hanks, uh, as we've said many times throughout this, you know, he likes space. So... He made a TV show about space after this. Um, and, you know, it was, I would say, reasonably successful from the Earth to the Moon. Uh, I think he did okay in the ratings and everything. Um, 
But yeah, so I mean, and here is here is what I will say about um, Ron Howard, uh, child actor, uh, teen heartthrob, and film director. Eventually, um, this film is is really well directed. Like you know, the pacing of it, the way that like the whole mission is done. You know, I'm sure there's a whole bunch of other stuff that they've kind of left out that you know could have you know been put in there, but they basically managed to get it down to a pretty succinct like you know, two hours and 20 minutes, you know, they're in space pretty quick. Most of that is them solving problems to get them back. And it is so well done. Um, and, you know, like, I think because of what happened with, you know, Solo, there are some people on the internet that somehow think they can take shots at Ron Howard as being like a poor director. Now, I will say also, he doesn't help himself with Inferno and Angels and Demons and the Da Vinci Code, all of which obviously I will be forced to endure <laughs> uh, because Tom Hanks stars in them. Um, so, so, and I think also recently, like Hillbilly Elgley didn't do him any favors. Um, but you know, when he, when he, when he needs to be, he can be like, you know, a really good director. You know, Frost Nixon is a wonderful film. Um, you know, uh, I even enjoyed In the Heart of the Sea. I thought that was fun. Rush was okay. Ed TV, you know, introducing the world to the idea that, uh, Woody Harrelson and, um, Matthew McConaughey could be brothers, which... Um, is really weird, uh, but kind of makes sense. Um, you know, uh, like Backdraft, I enjoy. Uh, you know, Willow's a fun film. You know, Splash, obviously, launched, you know, a film studio for Disney. Um, you know, Parenthood, that's a that's a great film. So, you know, I think maybe he's got a bit more of a patchy career when he, he aims for, like, Oscar bait. Um, but, you know, he, he can really direct a film. And, you know... I think uh, I would describe him a... as a, a steady, re- reliable director. He's not the most innovative of directors. Yeah. He doesn't think outside the box very much. He's just, like, a steady, dependable director. Well, I think that's why Lucasfilm brought so. him in, right? I mean, they, they had yeah. to make... When things yeah, going absolutely. off the rails. You know, they were like, we Ron need Howard. someone we know is just going to finish this and get this done. Otherwise, we're a disaster. Bring in Ron Howard. Bring in old reliable. <laughs> <laughs> also, on Arrested Development, he is obviously a delight as a narrator. Like he makes, oh, so he great. makes that show. Like even the two series that again, I had to endure uh, as I did my podcast, the final two series, you know, he is the saving grace of that. Like every time the narrator comes in with something kind of pithy. And even in season five, when he appears like as himself with like his whole family and Rance is there and, you know, Bryce Dallas is there and, you know, he's he's kind of willing to make fun at how genial people think that, you know, Ron Howard and his family are, um, you know, and it's like he, he's, you know, he seems like such a really nice guy. Uh, unfortunately, the next three times I talk about him, I'm not going to be praising him as much. So I feel like I should get this out here um, so that everyone knows I don't hate Ron Howard as a director. Um, but, you know, I think that occasionally, you know, a beautiful mind, Grinch who stole Christmas, like... You know, he just sometimes hasn't got the greatest of instincts when it comes to some choices in terms of what he's directing. But I think, you know, most of the time, you know, he's enjoyable. And this film, it's like so well done. Like, you know, uh, like I said, Dean Cundy with the cinematography, like, you know, when they're in the capsule, uh, obviously, you know, it is basically a plane flying, you know, at a parabola and they're, they're, you know, getting the footage there. But when they're looking at the moon and stuff, beautiful shots, you know, Um just you know makes you makes you really want to go into space but then of course you think what if everything goes wrong and they end up dying in space so immediately i'm like no i'm not gonna go in space uh, so, i'll just watch this movie know. instead <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah like this 
gravity like there's there's too many movies that just have said you know what it's not for me it's not for humans (laughs) (laughs) this this also fits in the template of tom hanks playing a character who manages to get what he wants he wants to come home from space he manages to come home from space um it's very rare i mean you know it's very rare that tom hanks in a film dies like you like you can count on like one hand the amount of times that happens you know most times you know, if something is troubling Tom Hanks' character, eventually it'll be resolved and Tom Hanks will just finish the film, get him what he wants. And, uh, you know, this is a very good example of that. He wants to come home from space. And they do. Um, so I feel like we should move on to the ratings. Obviously, everyone is a returning guest. We all know what they are. They're either T-Hanks or uh, no T-Hanks. And Beans, as we're in, like, number five of the Golden 14, I'm feeling fairly confident that I could probably guess what everyone's going to say, but I'll still start with Andy. Oh, it's absolutely a T. Hanks. Yeah, this is this is top notch, uh, probably in the, my top five for Tom Hanks films. Also T. Hanks, which I think it comes as no surprise since I love space and Tom Hanks and this movie. Uh, I think it's some of Ron Howard's best work. Definitely T. Hanks. I, I would not have um, signed up to come on this episode. I, if it was not a T-Hanks. You'd be surprised. There are some people who signed up for episodes and then at the end it's like no T-Hanks. Um, well, when I was, and, when I was on uh, League of Their Own, I think I was the only person who had seen the movie more than once. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And one person did no T-Hanks that as well. Yeah. And she also oh, no T-Hanks splash as well. So <laughs> not a fan. Oh, yeah, I know. Um, uh, for me, obviously a T-Hanks. I should say as well, Alice is a lovely guest. She just didn't enjoy those films. She didn't enjoy Splash. She didn't enjoy A League of Her Own. You know, everyone's entitled to their opinions. Um, you know, uh, yeah, T-Hanks for me. I mean, you know, like I said, I'd seen it a couple of times kind of halfway through and not really paid full attention to it. Um, but it is just a masterful, you know, the way that Ron Howard kind of puts everything together at the start so you kind of understand, you know, what's going on, particularly like, you know, when they're in the practice thing, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, the fact that the team is so close and then obviously with Matt in the kind of being taken out and then, you know, like every, every part of the kind of the storytelling is so, so well executed. And, you know, we get to um, things going wrong, like before the one hour mark. (laughs) So, um, you know, like it's extremely efficient in getting to kind of what, what the film is going to be known for, like, you know, uh, if anybody knew anything about Apollo 13 in 1994, it was probably because it was a, dis- you know, a, a kind of disaster. And it's funny as well, because obviously at the end, uh, Jim Lovell is like, you know, people, you know, kind of label it as being like, a, you know, you know, the mission that was a disaster. But, you know, they got them home. That's another he failure. He called it a you know, like... successful failure, I think. Yeah. Because yeah. The, even though fail. the mission didn't, didn't go off as it was supposed to, everyone got home safe. Yeah. And, you know, they solved all the problems they needed to and they kept the guys alive and they got them home. So that's... You know, I don't. Nobody should really ever classify that as as being failed. You know, they succeeded in what they needed to do, which was not lose three people to space and have them just floating around as corpses for the rest of eternity. Failure is not an um, option. Yes, I also, and uh, they didn't. I also didn't cannot fail, stress so. enough how much I love the James Horner soundtrack as well. Oh, oh so it's great. good with Annie Lennox's voice kicking in throughout. I mean, it's just it's it's some of James Horner's and best. He has work. a lot of good work. <laughs> And he did a lot of good work, a lot of his best work, I think, with Ron yeah. Howard, actually. Yeah. Um, and I would also say something that drove me insane on TikTok the other day was somebody was talking about one-hit wonders, and they put Annie Lennox what? in that category. What? Oh, come on. And- what? <laughs> That's the reaction I wanted. And literally every comment was like, what are you talking yep. about? One-hit wonder? Like, do you live in a, are you insane? A do, mm. Yeah, do some... What song did they claim was her only hit? Yeah, uh, Sweet, Dreams. Sweet Dreams. Sweet Dreams, I would imagine, yeah. Oh. Which, which isn't even Annie Lennox. Annie That's Annie Eurythmics. Lennox. 
No, that's her band. Yeah. That's, that's not she read the mix. Oh, oh yeah. You know, there are very few outlets where I can say to the world, something on TikTok drove me insane, and this is one of those outlets. <laughs> <laughs> and appropriately, yeah, Annie Lennox, uh, yeah, it's nice to kind of hear her voice come in, uh, like we say, kind of at the end. It's Yeah, it's like James Horner, he just, he, yeah, he like some of the stuff that he's done with Ron Howard before, it's, you know, it's good stuff. Um, but yeah, so, you know, an enjoyable film. So, you know, even if I guess you don't like space, or you don't like disasters, or I don't know, it, I don't know what kind of, insane person isn't going to watch this aside from i'm guessing people who think we never went to the moon um you know those are probably the the, the people who probably won't watch this uh, well they might enjoy it they'll just put it in the fantasy category <laughs> <laughs> does, i mean does anyone know if, if the uh the whole ridiculousness of that did that come before or after the movie capricorn one came out Oh, <laughs> when people actually started that's, saying, you know, oh, this is. I think there were some who didn't question. think it was real from the start, but then there were others. Okay. Who you know, kind of, you know, they like, yeah, like when when uh, when that came out, like that film just kind of popularized the idea that um, it was faked. I would imagine, like most uh, but, large conspiracy theories, the internet helped a lot as well. Well, yeah, the funny the internet's thing that's really really grown a lot of those conspiracies to much larger things that. <laughs> Yeah, well, as Greg Kinnear will say in a film coming up in a few weeks' time, the internet, it's just terrible. Um, you know, and he said that was being sponsored by AOL, which is kind of insane. Uh, so, <laughs> yes. Uh, so, well, thank you to everyone for being my guest here today. Or should I say, you know, writing in this capsule that is, you know, this particular podcast. We got home safe. <laughs> I'm glad we didn't uh, die from CO2 okay. poisoning. <laughs> yeah so um i will go to plugs is there anything you wish to plug and i'm going to start with uh andy you know this uh, oh, this drops i think october 2nd right yeah um this uh is coming right before the season four of marvel movie minute releases i am uh, back as host for that or co-host i should say i'm in the uh second chair for that uh we're talking about thor and digging into that movie so Check it out. You can go to marvelmovieminute.com and subscribe and jump into that show. And Eric? Uh, so first, uh, as I mentioned back at the top, um, I was a co-host of Escape from New York Minute. Um, that is a completed show, so you can listen to the whole thing. And we do have a bonus episode where we interviewed the amazing Dean Cundy. Um, I don't remember if I asked him about Apollo 13 specifically, but it wasn't only about Escape from New York. We talked about Roger Rabbit, Jurassic Park, a couple of other things there. Um, my other uh, movies by minute I was a co-host of is Flash Gordon Minute, uh, which um, Susan was actually yeah. a guest on, and actually uh, Andy was a guest on Escape from New York. I was. I, um, I missed Flash Gordon, but I really enjoyed uh, right Escape from New York. Uh, and that one uh, obviously features someone from Earth who goes to space and does not return to safety. By choice, by choice. A <laughs> little bit of a different ending there. <laughs> by choice, that's true. Does choose to stay at the end. <laughs> Uh, and uh, so yeah those are my two shows you can find them anywhere and I was actually uh, I want to uh, give a bonus plug to Andy because I was a guest on the very first season of Marvel Movie Minute on Iron Man Minute uh, I, I, and I listened to the whole show too uh, so uh, I enjoy uh, Marvel Movie Minute well thank you it's it's going to be a long haul but it's... <laughs> <laughs> it just gets longer and longer every year <laughs> I yeah. tell you I know and Susan <laughs> Uh, I am not a host of any podcasts. I have appeared on this podcast before in a League of Their Own minute. I appeared in a, an episode of Flash Gordon minute. I can be found on Twitter at Sherlock73. And, uh, yeah, I enjoy listening to podcasts. And if anybody wants to have me on as a guest, I am here and available. <laughs> well, I think we can all agree that this was an extremely intense story. 
But next time, it's just going to be a Toy Story. Oh.